you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 21. Now I'm going to read them, then we're going to kind of go through this. So what I want us to do is I want you to catch a vision for why we're in disciple makers. Now as I'm going through this, you're going to be thinking, what does this have to do with your ministry? Give it time, I'll get there. (laughs) So I'm going to start, we're going to read uh, 21 verses. I know it's a lot, but there's a story here, and I want you to catch the story. And then we're going to go on ahead and start. Before I read this, I want you to think of something. You know how in movies, when, they're gonna, when you're uh, in a dream or in a, in a flashback, now it's fuzzy around the edges and people's voices are kind of a little tinny or echoey. This is what I want you to think of in this verse or in, these cha- in this uh, passage of Scripture here. I want you to think of this more as a memory, okay? There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it comes or where it goes, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do not know, and testify that we, do, that we have seen, and you receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and you believe not, How should you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man has ascended up to heaven, but he that come down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be 
made manifest that they are wrought in God. So, little context. This is pretty much Jesus' first real, in-depth discussion recorded in Scripture. Before this was the wedding, and then he flipped the, the tables over of the money changers. And now this. So he's done some things, and the Pharisees, they're not hating him just yet. They're trying to figure out who is this guy. What's going on here? So they send Nicodemus. Why do we send Nicodemus? What is it about Nicodemus? If you kind of look through Scripture, he didn't really fit in too well with the Pharisees. He wasn't quick to judge. As you can see in chapter 7, he goes on ahead and he says, before we judge this matter, don't we in Israel usually let someone speak in their defense? And the Pharisees are like, are you trying to be a prophet? Because nothing good comes from Galilee. So here they pick Nicodemus. They say, you know what? None of us want our, our reputations tarnished. So why don't you go and talk to Jesus just in case this thing doesn't work out very well? Nicodemus goes. But he goes by night. We sit here and we think, why night? They're just going to find out what he, who he is, what he wants, what his plan is. You see, here's the interesting thing. The Pharisees were set up so well to believe in Christ. They believed in the inspiration of the Old Testament. They believed in the coming of the Messiah. They believed in miracles. And they believed in a promise of the resurrection. Can you think of a better belief system to accept Christ. They were set up perfectly. Yet they still didn't get it. So Nicodemus, go talk to this guy. All right? And come back and tell us what, what you think. So Nicodemus comes by night. Figures, I'll go alone. This way, not too many people are going to see me. So we see in verse 2, he came to, to Jesus and he said, listen, we accept that you're from God for who could do all these things if you weren't. Now, is there a question in that statement? Not really. So Jesus, seeing this man's heart, says, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So Jesus answers a non-question statement with a crazy statement. Nicodemus is going, what? What? Okay, so now you're telling me, verse 4, I got to enter back into my mother's womb and be born again, right? And I'm just getting this straight. This is what you're telling me, right? I'm just double-checking here. Because when I go back and tell the Pharisees, they're not going to believe this. So Jesus then says, except a man be born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. I want to stop there for a second. Born of water and spirit. When we get the spirit part, we understand that once we're saved, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We, we understand that. What does he mean by water here? 
Is he talking about birth, you know, the breaking of water? Is that what he's talking about? Maybe. Is he talking about baptism here? Being baptized? But if we pair that up with other scriptures, it doesn't teach that you need to be baptized to go to heaven. What is he talking about here? He's talking about God's word. He's talking about him and what he's teaching. Think about it. God's word is often used in scripture as described as water. It has a cleansing aspect to it. Wash yourselves in the word. There's other verses that, that allude to that washing and cleaning. So here we have, we need to be washed, or we need to be born of the Word and the Spirit. You know, it's funny. How do we come by salvation? How does faith come to us? By the Word. Right? Isn't that what Scripture teaches? John 15, it cleanses. So here we have Jesus saying, you need to be washed, you need to be born of the Word and of the Spirit. Hmm. And the funny thing is, this is a teacher of the Word, of the Old Testament, and he's not getting it. And Jesus understood that because he goes on further and tells him why you're not getting it. Then he goes on ahead and he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. See, God's not trying to change our flesh. We're still going to get old. We're still going to die. That's what's going to happen. But if you're born of the Spirit, you have a different life after this. Still doesn't understand it. Because then he says to him, marvel, do not be amazed, do not be astonished or stunned that I said you need to be born again. And then he says the wind blows where it may. And how do we tell that the wind is blowing? The leaves are moving. If it's blowing strong enough, the cars are moving. So we can tell by the evidence that the Spirit is working. What kind of evidence did the Pharisees have that the Spirit was working in their lives? There was none. See, but he's still not getting this. Nicodemus and the Pharisees are taught, we are teachers of the Word. We are responsible. We are the people who dictate what it says, how it means, and how to apply it. That's how they've been trained. How does the Spirit work? You know, this is, a, this is a very interesting topic because when you ask certain people, they imme immediately go to assuming that we're talking about emotional responses. They automatically say, oh, well, you're just feeling this way. So let me ask, how does the Spirit work? See, Scripture teaches that oftentimes we have an urge we can't shake. That's going to affect our emotions a little bit. That's okay. As long as they're kept in check by Scripture. You see, the Spirit, how many people who go on the field talk about, man, I just had this gut feeling. I just have this, I can't shake it. I can't get rid of it. I constantly think about this. 
God's working through the Spirit. So then we come to verses 9 and 10. Now Nicodemus is asking some legitimate questions. So he says, okay, explain this to me, please. How can all of these things that you talk about, the Spirit moving, all of these things, how can this be? How can someone be born again by the Spirit? Because I can't find that in the Old Testament. I can't find that. Moses teaching that. So explain this to me. Jesus says, aren't you a master of Israel and you don't know these things? See, they're an interpreter of the law. They're a ruler. How do they not know these things? Verily, verily, I say unto you, we speak what we do know and testify that we have seen and you receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no man has ascended into heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. So now he puts him in check. This is where Jesus now says, you think you have the authority. I have the authority. And he bases his authority on the fact that have you ever been to heaven? I have. I've come down to heaven to teach you. That's the basis of his authority. Christ declares himself the only one worthy to talk about the kingdom or heavenly things. He's the only one who has been there and descended to earth. Now remember, to this point, if we look at Scripture and we look at things a little bit theologically and doctrinally, technically no one even has ascended to heaven. Because at this point, everyone is still being held and in Abraham's bosom, whatever uh, we want to term that. When Christ dies, he takes those with him to heaven. So, Jesus is absolutely correct in saying, no one has been there except for me. No one has experienced that except for me. Jesus says that even as a teacher of earthly things, you missed the point. Here Jesus is performing miracles, doing things where he's defending God, and they're not getting it. And because they're not getting it, if they don't get this, how can they understand anything he teaches heavenly? Anything that he teaches where he says, this is great. You have the Old Testament. Let's build on it. Let's go from here. Let's talk about how to deal with your sins. Just like we were talking about this morning in song. How? How can you deal with your sins? Let me show you. And he gave him a vision. He said, just like Moses with the staff, the Son of Man has to be lifted up. He's not hearing it. He doesn't want to hear it. He's still stuck on, who is this guy? And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you guys understand where this is talking? This, this 
synonym here, if you will, of scriptures. Back in Numbers, we had an issue. The Israelites were complaining. And they were complaining about the water, and they were complaining about the food, and they were saying, we have nothing to eat. We have nothing to drink. I mean, we do have this bread, but it stinks. So, and God said, you couldn't even ask me. You couldn't even say, Lord, thank you for what you've given us. Can we please have something a little bit more? But instead, you just want to come and complain. How many people have kids who do that? They just come, and, they, and they're just whining. And God says, you know what? You want something? Here you go. And he gives them a bunch of snakes that end up biting a bunch of people and killing people. And Israel said, you know what? Maybe that was the wrong approach. So they come before Moses, and they say, please go to God and ask for forgiveness for us. Please. God says, you know what? I want you to make a bronze image of those snakes. Put it on yourself and hold it up. And if they believe that I'm the God who can heal them, all they have to do is look on that and they will be healed. But if they don't believe, I'm weeding them out and they're going to die. And that's what happened. And Jesus says, just like that staff, if you don't believe on the cross, there is no hope. And he says, wait a second. We have the system where we sacrifice animals. That's been fine for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So he's thinking in his head, this isn't making any sense. You're telling me that all this is null and void. Wait a minute. Verse 16. For God so loved the world, See, we can look at this and we can say, boy, God's being pretty rough here. God says, no, 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 no. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Nicodemus' question, even though it's not recorded here, if he was half intelligent, which he seems to be, his question is, who is the son of God? See, because he's going to go back and tell the Pharisees. And how many times did the Pharisees come to him and say, are you the son of God? Is that what you're saying you are? So right here, this question, right here where he says, he gave his only begotten son. See, God already gave him. It's already a done deal. Even though he hasn't died on the cross yet, here is Christ doing God's work. It's already done. He gave Christ. He's here. End of story. And Jesus is trying to say, he's here. It's me. Not me, me, but Jesus, me. He's saying, it's me. For God sent his son into the world, sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You take this verse and only build a doctrine on this verse, it's dangerous. Look at the first part. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. You know how many people will take that verse and say, see, we have no, we should just be allowing all of these things to take place in our church. We should be allowing these uh, 
political movements to allow, uh, you know, homosexuals. And I'm not saying that we should not be preaching and loving these people. But we're using it to say we should not hold any condemnation towards sin. Not what's being taught to us. But many people use this verse to justify that type of action. And then they say, see, all Christ's job was that the world will be saved. That's, that's it. That's, and Jesus goes on ahead, if you read further here, and he goes on ahead and he clarifies this. You see, one thing, there's two things here that have to be done. Two things need to be done. One, you must be born again. And two, Christ must go to the cross to die. There has to be a sacrifice. The Son of God must be lifted up. Verse 17 and 18. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus is correcting another Pharisee misconception. They thought that when the Messiah would come, he would judge. Christ will be a judge, but at his second coming, not this time around. His job now is Savior. In Christ, there is no condemnation. But, here's why. We're already condemned. That's the truth of the matter. We are already condemned. We and the world are not on trial. Our actions are not being tallied up. We've already lost. There's a movie, The Green Mile, and there's a saying in that, dead man walking. That's exactly where we stand. Dead man walking. The gospel is not telling a man that he might be condemned. It is telling him that they are in prison, awaiting the death penalty, but there is a pardon at hand if they want it. That's what the gospel is saying. It's not saying that Christ came to show you that you're sinners. You're already sinners. It's a done deal. He came to save you. That's what he came to do. And this is the condemnation. That light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hates the light, neither comes to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that does truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. See, here's the difference. Christ is here. And what happens is, he flipped on the light. And he's flipping them on on the Pharisees. You're a fake, you're a hypocrite. What does he call them? A brood of vipers? He calls them all sorts of different things. As a matter of fact, you want to read an interesting thing, go to John 8. In there, there's this huge discussion, 50 some odd verses. It's like, it's like a Maury show. Because they're trying to figure out who their father is. Who is your father? He, he says to the Pharisee. The Pharisee says, well, Abraham's our father. He says, no, if Abraham was your father, you would have got this by now. He says, who's your father? Well, well God's our father. If he was your father, you would have got this by now. 
well, what are you trying to say? And, and they go on the defensive. And he says, Satan is your father. Do you know why Satan's your father? Because right now you're plotting to kill an innocent man. God wouldn't do that. Abraham wouldn't do that. And it's funny. They act like children and they say, Satan's not our father. Your father was demon-possessed. <laughs> they, they just go into this really crazy argument. They're fighting like little children. See, funny thing is, is Nicodemus was there. Because in chapter 7, he told the Pharisees, let him defend himself. And that's what he was doing. See, Nicodemus, is, he's seeing all this. He's letting all this play out. Most will not accept the pardon. That's, just, that's the fact we have to come to. There's going to be a lot of people, family, friends, who will not accept Christ as their Savior. That's just the way it is. Do you know why? Deep down, they know that to accept Christ means a change in their life. They know something is going to change. They don't know if they're okay with that. They will see their evil deeds and feel guilt. An acceptance of a pardon means the start of a life change. Here's something I want you guys, if you've got a, a, a Bible or notes, you cannot accept Christ's saving power without accepting his transforming power. Let me say that again. You can't accept Christ's saving power without accepting his transforming power. Don't think he's just going to come into your life, give you fire insurance, and then leave. He's there to stay. In Revelation, what does it say? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone comes to me, or anyone opens the door, I will enter and I will eat with him. Imagine for a second, you get a knock on the door. It's the UPS man. Great, I was waiting for this. Fantastic. Beef jerky from somewhere. Yes, Omaha steak. You can send him to my door, I'll take him anytime. Here's the UPS man. He says, here's your box. Right on the sits down at the table and says, hey, what do we got to eat? Not my Omaha steak. I'm trying to get the feeling. It's been like this for a while. Same thing with Christ. When he says, I'm going to come into you and we're going to eat together, he's planning on staying for a while. Don't be fooled. And I'm not saying this just necessarily for you. But when we're presenting the gospel, we have to understand, and this is one thing that we do on campus, it's not just about getting souls saved. They have to make a decision, and they have to know if you're accepting Christ, you will never be the same. You have to understand this. How many times have evangelists to the gospel to all their friends would get them to make an emotional decision to say yes. There are consequences for your decision. Your parents could hate you. Do you realize what this would cost? 
When a person makes that kind of decision for Christ, you know it's real. You know that this is a person who's going to save you. And so we have to, when we're on campus, for our conscience's sake, make sure every single person we bring to Christ, it's not this. Now, I'm not saying emotions aren't involved, because when you're dealing with your sin, yes, emotions are going to be involved. But when you look at it, and they say, I know the cost. I know what this may cost me. And they make that decision anyway. Angels are singing. You know, we, when we're on campus, and we're preaching the gospel, and we recognize that Things aren't always going to go right, especially now. You know, there's going to be a lot of backlash, and there's going to be a lot of people who are going to even maybe get violent. And we're starting to see that already. And we're already starting to see if if the Islamic groups are going to start taking over, run by the Muslim Brotherhood, which is run by, um, uh, which is run by the Muslim Brotherhood. It's run by... um, the Muslim Student Association, which is run by the Muslim Brotherhood, we realize what's going to happen. We know that eventually, when these Islamic groups get a stronghold on a tower, they have no problems getting physical, driving people out. We're going to start seeing that. I mean, we've already started to see it overseas. It's happening almost on a daily basis. It will happen in the United States. Just give it time. It's coming. We know this. Recognizing that these things could happen. Should that shake us? Should that stop us? Now we have to be prepared for it. We have to handle it in a Christ-like manner. But that does not mean that we back away. And we say that's a lost field. There is no such thing as a lost field. None. So you remember how in the beginning I told you this is a flashback, right? Now imagine for a second everything kind of goes dark. And all of a sudden you start to hear some voices. And you hear some people calling out, some people crying, some people mocking, some people yelling, some people giving orders. And he opens his eyes and he sees Christ. See, here is Nicodemus at the foot of the cross witnessing Christ being crucified. And this, he flashed back to this conversation. And those other conversations are coming to him. He now realizes this was what he was talking about with Moses. I get it now. And then he witnesses the spear through Christ. And he feels a rush of emotions hit him. Anger at himself. Why didn't I get this sooner? And then he hears a Roman guard say, surely this was the Son of God. And he said, if this man can get it, why was I so slow? 
I can only imagine the, the emotions he was dealing with before the cross. Could I have stopped this? Could I have changed this? Could I have affected the Pharisees' minds if I had fought harder and believed sooner? What, what could have I done? What? And then he realizes the Son of God had to have been lifted up. There was no other way. And he feels helpless. Here's a man before who went to Christ at night. Had very little interaction with him, but watched. Watched everything Jesus did. Watched him be a man of his word and follow through with everything. Watched him trample all over the letter of the law when there was a woman who should have been stoned according to the law. He said, no man condemns you, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And Nicodemus gets it. He says, it's not about the law. It's about God's love. That's what this is about. I missed it. I get it. And he sees Joseph of Arimathea walk up. He talks to the Roman soldiers, and the Romans say, go on ahead, take his body. And at that point, Nicodemus went over and put on a shirt. And that shirt said, I'm with him, with an arrow pointing to the body of Christ as he carried him. And he made it known to everyone there that day, I'm with him, as he carried his body to the tomb. He put the line in the sand with the Pharisees. See, just like you can't accept Christ-saving power without accepting his transforming power, when you say, I'm with him, you get a cross. Every single one of us gets a cross to carry. The question is, what is your cross? Who is your cross? You know, Jack and Candy have invested in silly students like myself <laughs> for decades. They know that that's their cross. They know that that's where they're called to. So the question is, yeah, it's easy to say I'm with him. But are you carrying that cross? And if you don't know who God calls you to, all you have to do is ask. He'll make it clear. Where do you want me? Who do you want me witnessing to? There's people going through your mind right now that you're thinking of. Do you think maybe they're on your cross? That these are the people that you're burdened for? Where do you think that burden came from? This is our vision for disciples. To go on campus to preach Christ. See, Jesus was dealing with an intellectual here, Nicodemus. He was dealing with a man who think he knew. When we're on campus, we're going to be dealing with teenagers out of high school. They think they know. That's our call. That's our vision. We want to bring them to the foot of the cross 
that they can deal with their sins and they can then get their own cross. See, we now have a new... Uh, it's, it's evidenced in this, in this ministry because we have a new uh, program starting. We've dealt with so many overseas students at our local colleges that we're now starting summer missions trips to aid those students in their ministries or help them start ministries in their countries. We can't stop. We have to keep pushing. See, as Nicodemus walked and carried Christ, he knew what his cross was. I got to deal with these Pharisees. And he aligned himself with Christ that day in daylight as the Pharisees watched, because you know they were there. They wanted him dead in the worst way. Our vision on campus is simply introducing them to Christ and helping them grow in Christ. Simply stated, difficult to carry out. You see, Matthew 16, where God, Christ spells out, pick up your cross and carry it. That job for every one of us is to bring the lost to Christ and disciple. Do you know how a church grows? I mean real growth. You can offer people, you can offer them candy, you can offer them, come to church, we'll give you 50 bucks. You can offer them anything that you want. Maybe you make your son grow. But true growth happens in the older generation who gets to see the older generation. Where they disciple the younger people. That's when growth happens. You know why? Especially with millennials. Are you willing to step out and say, you know, here's a kid that needs to step out? Or the parents, would you like to pick him up right from the talking to him? Discipling has to happen. If we don't happen, we get a generational divide, which is what we're experiencing right now with the millennials. And I'm not just talking about the baby boomers and the millennials. Gen X is going, hey. We ended up pretty good. You guys thought we were going to be screw ups, and we're doing pretty darn well right now. And then we look at the millennials and go, what do we do? We have to prove our faith. Step up, disciple the younger generation. That's what we have to do. Put our money where our mouth is. Not just say, I'm with him, but literally pick up that cross. That may mean you lose out on some of your beauty sleep. I don't need it. I'm already perfect. So. But it may mean a loss for some sleep. It may mean a loss for your comfort zone. Let's say Christ dies so that you can have a comfort zone. Let's see that anyway. 
So if you have a comfort zone, what does that tell you? Hmm. That's our vision for disciple makers. That's why we're in it. That's why we feel called to it. If you guys have any questions, anytime, you want updates, please, we have forms in the back. Write your emails down. We have newsletters going out every month. What's going on on campus? What we're seeing? What we're experiencing? You can always call us. We can give you updates. Let you know what we need prayer for because if you know me, I need a lot of prayer. <laughs> I want to thank you guys. You guys have been extremely hospitable. Um, it's great to see old faces and new faces. Um, that means that you guys are experiencing growth as well, seeing new faces. But if you have any questions, just feel free. Grab Ashley and I. Can I close in prayer? Would that be? Okay. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your word and what it teaches us. Lord, the example of Nicodemus and his conversation in dealing with Christ. Lord, we pray that we would have that realization. Lord, even though you may be our Savior, you may be our Lord, sometimes we need a reminder. Lord, and we know that even I need a reminder every day when I wake up. I'm not here for myself. I'm here for you. Lord, may we wake up with that thought on our mind. Maybe not ask so much why, but instead say, what's next? What will you have for me to do? Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray now that we would have a, a good night, and those that are watching fireworks, that they would just have a good time, and maybe even bump into somebody that they can add to their faith. Thank you for everything that you've done, everything that you're doing, and everything that you will do. In Jesus' name.